here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome, scabs and warts, to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and, today only, mummies. I'm your trip keeper, Cody, and joining me today for a bland tale of malaise are my co-host, Mike. Mike, give us a spooky pun. No. Okay, and my other co-host, Jamie. Hit me with a spooky pun. Some spooky wordplay. Dead people are... They're, they're, they're in graves. Super duper. Super, super duper. Anyways, instead of doing a traditional box office pulp, today we're bringing back an older feature, Tales from the Bop. I'm going to play your Crypt Keeper and recount a tale of a movie you actually shouldn't bother watching. Jamie and Mike have not seen the movie I'll be describing, so for them, it's, it's, it's uh, a trip through a mind palace that's gone through some shit. And today's shit is 2017's The Mummy. No, 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 come back, come back, come back. You can, Cody, you can listen, you don't have to watch. Yeah. Cody, why are you so hardcore doing your game show host voice? That's my version of the Crypt Keeper. Okay, I, I just want, I feel like the audience needs to get on this. Is Cody's avatar right now on Skype is a picture of the Crypt Keeper with a bow tie, by the way. Hey, and a picture staring at that while Cody is doing his game show voice, and it's like everything's all, like reality is now off center. I, I that's perfect for what we're doing today. No balance. You should have vertigo. Okay. <laughs> all right. Good. <laughs> so, with uh, no further ado, let's jump into the movie. Now, imagine ah, you're an excitable child of 27, and you're in the theater. And you're all excited because a concept of the dark universe is being unveiled. This is the first entry in what is hopefully going to be a series that revives all of your favorite movie monsters. And things quickly go downhill. So the logo pops up for the dark universe. And maybe you guys saw the clips online where they teased it by having like a quick montage of all the various 30s and 40s and 50s monsters all together. And Danny Elfman's score. Uh, They don't use that. Instead, the Dark Universe logo they use is they have the Universal logo come up, and then it becomes eclipsed, and you get a black hole with a little bit of gold rimming, and it says Dark Universe, and it moves right on from there. Well, that's lazy. You got to start your expectations low, apparently. Like, I was really expecting some Marvel shit where they're, like, flipping through comic book pages, and there's, like, pictures of the Hulk tearing a car in half, but, you know, with the Wolfman, and nada. I was about to say, don't expect the Hulk. The Hulk, yes, it was their version of Dr. Jekyll. So, you've got that. That's their new logo, and it's boring as hell. Which is probably going to set a good tone for what happens afterwards. That fades out, and we get your standard quote, Death is but the doorway to new life. We live today, we shall live again. In many forms shall we return. Egyptian prayer of resurrection. Whoa, whoa, they just throw some Vigo out there? (laughs) Yes. He is Tom Cruise. He has veto power. Uh, so that's that's their ooky spooky opening. It works much better in something like Hellboy 1. Uh, it doesn't work so great here. But, you know, it's still early, so we can give him the benefit of the doubt. That fades away. 
And then we cut to the Knights Templar, because that's what I think what? when I think of mummies. The Knights Templar what? are burying a man, uh, and he's he's being lowered into his tomb. They put this big old honking cartoon ruby on his chest. Wait, 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 wait. C- Cody, is the mummy a knight? Is this a good movie you're talking about? No. The Knights Templar will play in later, but not very much. So after the Knights Templar finished burying this body with this gigantic cartoon gemstone, uh, we jump forward to uh, a bunch of like miners, but not kids, minor miners making room for subway tracks, drilling through, and they uncover all the tombs that the Knights Templar were just filling up. We jump to newscast footage explaining this, saying uh, the Knights Templar were in Egypt, and then they came back here and I guess all died at the same time and had to be buried. Uh, Because... And they don't really say why the Knights Templar were in Egypt. This is apparently their secret burial ground, and we just found it. There's some really bad footage of underwater tombs, because that needs to play <laughs> off later in the movie. So they apparently like found out this happened, rushed a man down there with an underwater camera and a really good lighting setup. Okay, I just later- want to put a pin in this and say, that is the whitest thing I've ever heard of, going to Egypt to be luxury buried. <laughs> No, 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 they're not buried. I'm sorry, this is confusing. They weren't buried in Egypt. They were in Egypt at some point, but then they came back to London to be buried. This tomb is in London. So they appropriated it? Pretty much. Racism. Also, I'm very stuck on the underwater tombs, because I'm just imagining (laughs) a beautiful, like, burial for a merman. And it's, like, both sad and delightful at the same time. It's Jason Momoa. These are nice tombs, too. They're, like, carved out to look like a person on the top. You know, like, they they took their time. This isn't just a couple of pebbles over top of body. These are real tombs. So, anyways, as, like, all the diggers are looking around at this stuff and they can't really tear it all down because now, you know, historical site, Russell Crowe walks in with a large crew of G-men. Like, just bureaucrats run after him and just start taking control of this excavation site. No, not the G-men. Not the G-men. Do they call them that in London? Like, what are they, Parliament men? P-men? <laughs> Urine. <laughs> they, they start locking things down and kicking people out. Uh, Russell Crowe walks over to a wall with some hieroglyphics, and he has an internal monologue about there being dark secrets in this world. To quote, a secret erased from history and forgotten to time. It then immediately cuts to a flashback that tells all of Princess Amonet's secret backstory as told by Russell Crowe. So apparently this is a really shitty secret. What? That's how this is structured? That's Uh, terrible. I don't even have a joke. That's just bad. (laughs) Right, yeah. So Russell Crowe, I'm not sure if he read the hieroglyphics and that's how he found out about the secret backstory or if he already knew and just like this was association for him. So he's like, ah, Amonet, I know where we're at. Let me tell you about her. We don't have a choice, though, because we jump into our first of many flashbacks. Amonet seems pretty happy. She's standing on some sand dunes with her father. Uh, uh, but then, apparently, her, her dad, the king, decided to get busy once more and has a baby boy. Uh, that baby will grow up to inherit the kingdom, she realizes, so she is unhappy. And naturally, she makes the plan to immediately sell her soul uh, to Egyptian Satan, who is set. Uh, the ceremony, I think, basically is just her, like, praying, and Set stumbles up behind her and hands her a gigantic, big-ass black dagger, 
the second she takes the dagger, she is covered in evil hieroglyphic tattoos, and her eyes split into double pupils. Please tell me when Set shows up, it says in subtitles, Egyptian Satan. Like Egyptian <laughs> Satan. Uh, they do say, uh, Russell Crowe, I think, specifically mentions uh, she makes an evil pact, or like she, she <laughs> does something and decides to embrace evil. He, he's very clear about this being evil all around, so you have to assume it's Egyptian Satan. Uh, that's a high horse, Henry Jekyll. <laughs> So anyways, now that she has this evil dagger, she can enact her plan to become the queen of Egypt. Uh, she takes the dagger and then just sneaks into her dad's room while he's sleeping and slits his throat. And then sneaks into the baby's room and then slits its throat. You had done that earlier. They just, yeah, you know, well, <laughs> they have the baby cry and then you just see like a blood splash on her face. So oh, Boslu, no. It might not be the baby. We don't know. This is PG-13. They can't show <laughs> so dead babies. I'm, I'm just imagining now the baby is just a tiny, tiny, tiny Arnold Vosloo. Like it's a fucking <laughs> baby's body, but an oversized Arnold Vosloo head crying. And then she slits his throat. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. It's a mercy killing. Pit's too big for that baby. Uh... <laughs> So having killed her father and the baby and now being in line for the throne, which she could have done with a normal dagger or like through hired henchmen or literally a hundred other ways that don't involve making a deal with Egyptian Satan. Uh, she has to complete a ritual where she is trying to fuck a dude. So she's on top of him. Uh, they're grinding a little bit and she's about to stab him with this big ass dagger when out of nowhere the palace guards finally apparently wake up and they shoot her with tranquilizer blow darts. Oh, she's about to come. Ah! Uh, Maybe that's the fetish though. It's like it's like Egyptian donkey punch. She was into it the whole time. <laughs> this was planned. So as as they drag her away, uh, one of the guards kills the dude she was going to fuck. Uh, she drops the dagger and it breaks the giant cartoon ruby which is connected to the hilt of the dagger, falls off. So now we've got the dagger, giant cartoon ruby, separated. Uh, they decide her punishment is to be mummified alive. And in this case, it's uh, they just wrap her up in some towel and throw her in a box. <laughs> is it the boo box? That's just a prank. It wasn't, it wasn't like in, you know, the 1999 mummy where they cut off her tongue. I, I, they still do like all the evil spirit stuff, but they're less explicit about that. They basically just bury her alive. Which is still horrifying. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't want it to happen to me. Well, too bad. So, with that, Russell Crowe's narration ends, and we get the title screen, The Mummy, and we open up on the modern day. Uh, the screen says Mesopotamia, and then that changes, and it switches to territory now known as Iraq. I have whiplash already. That was like five different full stops before the credits. Yes. Wait, was this fucking Suicide Squad 2? <laughs> Uh, pretty much because they also do a shit ton of flashbacks to all this stuff, so you learn it about three times. Anyways, now that we have our backstory, we open with Tom Cruise in Mesopotamia, territory now known as Iraq. He has a note on the bottom that says, from Henry, investigate this site, and it's got coordinates. Tom Cruise and new girl's Jake Johnson are standing <laughs> in the desert. That's his legal name now. New girl's Jake Johnson. I wrote all of my notes just saying Jake Johnson. So that's who he is for this entire thing. Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise. I don't remember his character name. <laughs> um, they are standing on the sand dunes. They're wearing military fatigues, kind of like they're, they're dressed as scouts, I guess, for the military is their purpose. Uh, 
And Tom Cruise has decided they're just going to keep investigating places that might have reliquy they can steal. And Jake Johnson's like, oh, we're getting we're getting in trouble. And Tom Cruise just doesn't give a shit. Uh, anyways, they're looking through binoculars at a bunch of insurgents who are just destroying some ancient ruins. Tom Cruise says they need to go into the city and, and steal some stuff, look for a tomb. Jake Johnson doesn't want to do it. Tom Cruise says he can do what he wants and then shoots Jake Johnson's canteen, leaving Jake no option but to either die in the desert from thirst or to join Tom Cruise's suicide mission. Tom Cruise is an asshole in this movie. This is actually his character from War of the Worlds. This is that job he had that made him so tired. <laughs> so uh, they go into the city and they are immediately found out by the insurgents and they're dodging grenades and bullets. And eventually an, uh, an American airstrike flies in and blows some of them up and the rest hop up in a pickup truck and disappear from the movie. So these guys are still in the city. They're alive. They thought they were going to die. Tom Cruise never apologizes for putting them in this bad position. Uh, the airstrike, besides clearing out the bad guys, also blew up a hole in the ground, which reveals a giant screaming face in the sand. Uh, you know it's bad because uh, what good place has a giant angry screaming stone face in front of it? My IHOP, uh, a couple couple blocks away, actually has that. And it's, it's They serve pancakes, so that's not that not like that evil, necessarily. Um, yeah, that's no, true. I guess, I guess the syrup's right. going to... And unhealthy, Maybe. but you know, you know still, you know, go to IHOP, get a nice, nice, nice breakfast, and you know, there's a screaming face. But there's a little you know, presumptuous you, on my part. Yeah, I think you should be a little nicer, a little less judgmental about screaming faces. All right, yeah. Fine. What about the face on Mars, Cody? Oh, Is saying Mars a shitty place. Have you ever seen Doom? Hmm. Fucking Mars is. <laughs> That's true. I won't deny. It. Anyways, Tom Cruise, Jake Johnson are found out by a superior officer, a colonel, who is chewing them out for essentially going AWOL, running all around Iraq, uh, and stealing antiques, and then selling them on the black market. We're supposed to think the colonel is an asshole for yelling at Tom Cruise, but the dude is clearly correct, and Tom Cruise is, like, the bad guy here. <laughs> He's supposed to be in the military and just decides, like, no, what if I use this opportunity to make money? I just imagine Tom Cruise going into the writer's room and being like, I like this scene, but can the audience like me instead? <laughs> yeah. So as they're getting chewed out by this colonel, uh, a woman interrupts things. Uh, uh, a blonde British woman. She walks into frame and then immediately slaps Tom Cruise. It turns out the note he had from Henry was stolen from her. Uh, he fucked her off screen, and then in the morning while she was sleeping, he stole her papers and probably her wallet and ran off. Tom Cruise is an asshole in this movie. <laughs> Side note, I like the first time I watched this movie, I never got her name, so I only wrote in notes love interest, which I know is demeaning. Like Her character has a name. They say it a thousand times in the movie. I should recognize it. But she's just going to be love interest for the ease of this whole thing, because that's what my notes say. Anyway, love interest, actress Annabelle Wallace, is 33, old, 33 years old right now in real life. Tom Cruise is 55 years old. It's a little weird to see 55-year-old Tom Cruise, like, in love with a 33-year-old woman. I don't know, that seems pretty in character for Tom Cruise. Yeah. I will at least say, to play devil's advocate. Oh, no. She's technically at least not in her 20s. That's true. Also, Tom Cruise is looks younger than all of us, let's face it. It it's is weird. He stopped, magic. he stopped aging at 38. It's the power of Xenu. 
He's clear. That's, that's the explanation. He's the one person who's actually clear. He's on that Boeing right now. <laughs> so my memory gets a little foggy here. After slapping Tom Cruise and saying they need to investigate the site that just opened up, the colonel says they have to leave in an hour. And instead of doing anything about Tom Cruise and Jake Johnson abandoning the military, basically says, you guys are all going in the hole. So the three of them have one hour to investigate this tomb before they all have to evacuate. And there's a chance that insurgents might be gathering troops to kill them all. So they go into the tomb. Uh, They find an elaborate trap system with a vat of mercury holding a submerged casket. Uh, The casket's held in place with a complex series of pulleys and a chain that goes around the whole vat. Um... I don't know why they didn't just drop the casket in the mercury. I guess I, maybe that's like a density thing. But they, they definitely had to have this complex series of rigging to hold the casket down for some reason, I guess. I don't know. I don't understand it. Anyways, Love Interest uh, starts walking around. She's recording things and providing a giant info dump about what happened to this person and why she would end up this way and why everything's the way it is. Tom Cruise and Jake Johnson pay no attention because they immediately start robbing the tomb. They just walk in and start picking up gold reliquy that's sitting around and stuffing it into their pockets. Uh, Tom Cruise is an asshole in this movie. It has not changed so far. Uh, Jake Johnson picks up some gold. He makes eye contact with an Anubis statue, gasps, and then kind of like stumbles off. This is never explained. He, He just does this thing and acts terrified by the statue. (laughs) <laughs> it's the weeping angels wait so he doesn't like stumble back into anything that's plot relevant or he just gasps no and... he, he makes a light gasp and then he just kind of quickly walks off screen so while this is going on love interest is still explaining how all this works and she talks about the chains around the sarcophagus uh being signs from the gods as a warning not to enter the mercury vat and she explains the other chains that are holding the coffin down, sarcophagus down, uh, are specifically not to bring the coffin up, but to keep it held down. These are vertical pulleys, mind you, that go like 20 feet in the air. Tom Cruise finds out they don't have much time, so he just pulls his gun out and immediately shoots the pulleys, releasing the casket. Like, no one even says, hey, what, how are we going to get these? He just starts blowing things away with his gun. Uh, Love interest seems mad about this for a second, but then they just have this casket and a giant wave of camel spiders then runs out and swarms the group. Uh, one climbs up Jake Johnson and bites him on the neck. He freaks out and takes his uh, machine gun and just starts shooting them before Tom Cruise tells him to knock it off because they're not poisonous and they're not harmful. Uh, Jake Johnson, mind you, was bitten by one pretty seriously. <laughs> but as soon as Tom Cruise says they're not dangerous, they all scatter off. Like they were just reminded like, oh shit, we don't have poison. So the giant swarm of insects leaves. The coffin is now up in the air. Uh, they should know it's bad news because it's made out of like black stone and it's carved to look like a screaming corpse. Uh, Tom Cruise makes eye contact with the gaping holes of the corpse coffin uh, and is transported to a dream sequence of Princess Amonette in the desert walking up to him. She kind of like skips frame and she's right in front of him and she pulls him in for a kiss. But before they can kiss, love interest starts yelling at Tom Cruise to stop sitting around and hurry up. And it breaks the spell. Tom Cruise sees her, and he just looks utterly baffled. He looks so confused. Tom Cruise doesn't know where he is. Anyways, they get a helicopter to yank out the evil casket. Tom Cruise continues to look confused as he walks around. He notices a bunch of crows are now gathering above them 
ominously. No. They all hop in a Jeep. They drive a couple miles down the road to a loading plane. They grab the coffin. Love interest has to be very careful and tell all the military men, it's over 5,000 years old. Be careful. Because I guess they never would have been careful otherwise. They all get lowered into the plane. Tom Cruise stumbles on, still looking very confused. A dust storm is now gathering, so they have to hurry. They load the plane. They fly off. Tom Cruise uh, gets this weird shot where he's just staring at Love Interest's bared midriff as she's stowing things away in the overhead bin. Mind you, this is like a giant... Uh, it's it's not an airplane so much. It's like a one of those military ones that can haul like giant amounts of goods and vehicles. So it's just kind of the cargo netting she's reaching up to, and he's just staring at her stomach. Leering is probably the best term for this. So Tom Cruise is an asshole in this movie. Tom Cruise is an asshole in this movie. Uh, she catches him, and they get into a discussion about Tom Cruise and sex. And he basically says, like, he totally satisfied her. And she's like, it was 15 seconds, uh, and it was bad. Wait, wait, wait. I, I thought you, for a second there, I thought you meant they start talking about the actor Tom Cruise and his sex life. <laughs> they, uh, Tom, gets, get out of the writing room. <laughs> it gets very meta. Like, Tom Cruise, he goes up to the screen and he just tells the cameraman, like, I am very good at sex. You better stay away from that Tom Cruise. I hear he's hung like a horse. <laughs> and then he plays <laughs> the, the highway to the danger gym. zone, a kazoo. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Tom Cruise takes the point that he's bad at sex, and uh, she then lays on to him for being too selfish while talking about like rescuing this sarcophagus is good for all mankind, which I guess is irony because it's clearly holding an evil mummy. Well, what did she think was in it? Like the cure for cancer? An evil mummy. That's good for everybody. Uh, <laughs> but think of, all that, think of all that science could learn from that mummy, Cody. <laughs> well, it's, I, I think your whole plan is to destroy the mummy, as I'll reveal later. Uh, anyways. My God. So Tom Cruise feels bad for getting yelled at, or at least acts like it. Uh, no one notices that Jake Johnson is by himself dying in the corner of the airplane. Like, some people are having a conversation about sex. Meanwhile, Jake Johnson is constantly, like, fidgeting with his neck in pain and wheezing. His eyes roll back in his head, and he just stops breathing. And no one notices. So that happens. He just dies in the corner by himself. Uh, Love interest starts reading out the princess's backstory again from the casket. So all the information we've received from Dr. Jekyll and from, like, another flashback we're now being told again. Tom Cruise gets a series of flashbacks that are the flashbacks we've gotten before already. Mind you, this is probably, like, I don't know, 15 minutes into the movie. Is it sad that I'm already like, I feel like I could re-edit this into something more watchable very easily. <laughs> oh, very easily. Uh, the only change with this flashback is instead of the princess fucking the dude she's about to sacrifice, it's Tom Cruise she's grinding against. <laughs> uh, anyways, he snaps out of this because I think love interest is yelling at him and he just continues to look very confused because he's now on an airplane again. Anyways, he looks over and Jake Johnson is a zombie now. Zombie Jake Johnson takes out his knife and is slowly trying to pry open the evil casket. The colonel yells at him, so zombie Jake Johnson just stabs him in the chest. Uh, the rest of the troops pull their guns at on him. He slowly walks up to them with the knife out. Like, the knife is pointed straight out, and he's just slowly marching towards them. No slashing motions. He just has the knife out, and he's just marching. Uh, Tom Cruise gets real nervous about this and shoots him. It doesn't stop him, so he shoots him again, and his buddy falls on the ground. Uh, Tom Cruise looks terrified that he's just shot his friend, but then he accidentally shoots him a third time while he's on the ground. <laughs> Tom Cruise continues to look confused. Before anyone can say anything about the guy they just shot to death, 
uh, a swarm of birds smash through the plane's cockpit, killing the pilots. Tom looks even more confused. I think he has time to utter the line, what the hell, before the birds start just filling the rest of the plane. And the plane transforms into the vomit comet. So all the actors left are just bouncing around this plane with zero G. Uh, There's an explosion. The side of the plane is gone. Everyone gets sucked out of the plane, except for Tom Cruise and love interests. He nobly takes the only parachute, puts it on her, and then ejects her from the plane to save her life. This is, uh, if you remember correctly, the infamous IMAX preview, where there was no sound except for Tom Cruise yelling. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, can this just be me? (laughs) So if if you watch the movie and you listen closely and ignore all the other junk, you can still hear Tom Cruise like, oh! Whoa! Ah! Ah! throughout the whole thing it, it makes it a lot more fun so the plane goes down tom cruise lets out one more ah! before we cut to white and the title comes back up what the mummy and then it fades back in <laughs> love interest is like in a state of shock apparently she now loves tom cruise uh she's sitting in an office somewhere there's a morgue we cut to with all the crash victims and body bags it's very sterile there's no blood I don't know if there's any blood in this movie. Uh, Tom Cruise wakes up and rips the plastic off himself, and he sits up and he's very confused. He's totally unharmed. Here's a little fun fact from the commentary. Uh, Jake Johnson was in one of those body bags. He did not want to be in one of the body bags. Uh, He talked to the special effects crew, and they said there was no reason for him to be in the body bag because no one would ever see his face. Tom Cruise heard about this and was upset (laughs) because if he was going to be in the bag, everyone should be in the bag and demanded that Jake Johnson get in the bag. He did, and he, he then asked them, could you just not zip it shut? You know, no one's going to see that it's zipped open. No one's going to see me in the corner. I'll be in the bag, just don't zip it shut. They agreed. They walked off. They are just about to film. Tom Cruise walks through the set, notices the bag is open, and yells out, damn it, why isn't this zipped? And then zip shut the bag, and forces Jake Johnson to do the scene trapped inside of a plastic coffin. Uh, once the first take was done, Tom Cruise didn't like it and forced him to do a second take. And Jake Johnson demanded that was the only one they do. <laughs> he laughs about it on the commentary, so he's gotten over it, I guess. So Tom Cruise could have killed somebody. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming it wasn't that dangerous, but I certainly wouldn't want to be zipped into a plastic bag for like a couple hours. <laughs> Not dangerous, but that doesn't really remove the fact that Tom Cruise is an asshole in real life. And in the movie. It works both ways. He's not even acting anymore. That's what you get away with when you're clear. (laughs) Anyways, uh, the only time we see Jake Johnson in this scene, he's not in a body bag. He's wearing like his clothes he died in. He's just standing in the middle of the morgue. Uh, Tom Cruise, after he wakes up from his plastic bag, sees zombie Jake Johnson standing next to him. And zombie Jake Johnson says he's going to wish he was dead soon. The doctors and love interests barge into the room. Zombie ghost Jake Johnson is gone. Cruz is angry, confused, also naked. So he has to do like the classic, oh, my nuts. And he covers his privates and kind of dances around the room. We cut away to the plane crash scene. It's now night. Uh, It was daylight when this thing crashed. So apparently it's been a while, but we just have two guys with their lights on. Police officers driving up to start investigating the crash. I don't know why they waited so long while they tagged all the bodies before they decided they needed to investigate, but that's where we're at. So there's two guys now investigating the whole scene. They find the evil sarcophagus open, and there's a bunch of crows hanging around. Uh, The first guy, who I'm just going to call body body count number one, 
finds the mummy and he is right next to it and super confused. Like he just has no idea why there would be a mummy inside a sarcophagus. Apparently no one briefed him on what this thing was carrying. So while he's confused, he starts yelling out for body count number two to join him. Uh, The mummy jumps at him in a jump scare. And we cut to the second body count wandering around looking for his friend. Uh, Then the mummy jumps on that guy and kisses him to death. So in this movie, Princess Aminet gains her strength by kissing you to death. She just jumps on you and sucks your soul out through a kiss. So she gets more vitality for each person she murders with her death kiss. And they turn into beef jerky men. Like Hellraiser 2? Yeah. Like Julia? Yeah, more or less. Uh, so yeah, she she has uh, now two beef jerky minions. Also, I forgot to mention the best part about this. The plane apparently crashed right next to goddamn Carfax Abbey. <laughs> like, there's the plane crash stuff, and then there's just an, a giant classic 1930s spooky Abbey right next to the plane crash. So that's very right. convenient. It'll be, it'll be great in the next scene. We cut back to Tom Cruise sitting in a pub. Uh, He does like three shots and he's holding two pints of beer and he's drinking those. Uh, Love interest is there staring at him as he just chugs all the alcohol they will give him. Tom Cruise repeatedly sees ghost zombie Jake Johnson flashing around the background before he clears his eyes. And it turns out to be like, you know, the bartender pouring beer instead of ghost zombie Jake Johnson. Tom Cruise looks confused. Then we get more flashbacks repeating the princess and the cartoony dagger. The The start of the movie essentially plays a second time as Love Interest tells Tom Cruise what he missed during the first 10 minutes of the movie. As if he were like a member of the audience who like went up to go to the bathroom before the movie started and came back and was like, oh shit, oh, I can't watch it now. What happened? I missed the whole start. So yes, we get the whole being of the movie essentially again through flashbacks. <sighs> While this is going on, Ghost Zombie Jake Johnson is basically playing charades behind the bar, trying to motion for Tom Cruise to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Tom Cruise goes to the bathroom. (laughs) What a weird swing code this this is. So Tom Cruise is in the bathroom, and this is where the film decides it needs to... Just become American Werewolf of London real quick. So each time we've seen Ghost Zombie Jake Johnson, he's a little bit more deteriorated. And he's basically there to warn Tom Cruise that he has a curse on him and he can't die. And it's revealed that he too is cursed because Tom Cruise is alive and cursed. Uh, They kind of have a few joking moments where they laugh about Tom Cruise murdering his friend and shooting him accidentally for a third time. It's it's mostly Tom Cruise doing the joking, though. I don't know if (laughs) Ghost Zombie Jake Johnson appreciates being dead. So, after the relevant information is dumped, a bunch of women try walking to the bathroom because Tom Cruise was tricked into going to the ladies' room, I guess. Uh, Tom Cruise kicks them all out and then for some reason immediately leaves the bathroom. I don't know why he just didn't let them in while he walked out. But he, he runs into an alleyway and he looks very confused for a minute. And then he notices there are some rats that are starting to gather at the other end of the alleyway. And they start bum-rushing him. And also he sees a mummy. As he's submerged in rats, he wakes up, and it turns out that was just a dream. Uh, Tom Cruise is now very confused, or maybe drunk, and he's on the jolly old streets of London. He explains what he knows to love interest, and he gets into a semantics fight about archaeology jargon. Uh, Casket versus sarcophagus. They decide this is the proper time to have that argument. I don't remember which is the correct one. I think I've been saying casket, but it should be sarcophagus. Drilling mummy action. Yeah, it's... Yeah, 
exactly what they should be talking about there. Uh, she's not sure she believes him or acts like that, uh, even though she's actually part of a secret group of monster finders. Uh, she says he needs to find a doctor and she knows a specialist. Tom Cruise doesn't want to see a doctor, though, and then he gets flashes of the wreckage site and just decides to leave. She follows. Uh, so we go back to the wreckage, the Carfax Abbey. Princess Amonette is, has been draining security guards the whole time this has been going on, I guess. Tom Cruise... There's no good way to phrase that, is there? No. So Tom Cruise and Love Interest break the security border, which is just police tape, uh, and start looking around the Abbey. <laughs> they argue about being in the wrong place, but Tom Cruise is determined he's in the right spot, but he looks very confused still. That's a permanent expression through this whole movie, just confused. Anyways, uh, while Love Interest is yelling at him, he turns and he sees a mummy beckoning him into the church. So I swear to God, I thought you were going to say a mummy beckoning him into the bathroom. <laughs> into a new bathroom. <laughs> just, a, just a porta potty out in the middle of nowhere. It's a series of bathroom set pieces. That's my last weekend in Prague all over again. Uh, so Tom Cruise then gets another repeat of the flashbacks from the start of the movie, and he wakes up inside the church confused, more confused. Uh, while he's confused in the church, we see a mum mummy skittering around the shadows wherever Tom Cruise isn't looking. So he attempts to just back his way out, and a mummy just tackles him like a fucking linebacker and smashes him to the ground. A bunch of beef jerky minions have him then tied to a slab, and Princess Amonette hops on top of him and starts, like, checking out his teeth, and she's pulling his shirt off, and she's kissing his sternum and his stomach. Like, it's some fucking hot mummy erotica. Oh, yeah. I've had dreams like this involving Arnold Luslow. Ooh, she's like 95% beef jerky herself still at this point. So she's got her like her, her skeleton bony hands all over his hips and stuff. And they're, she's like trying to do some grind and stuff. Uh, she breaks open some reliquy that's right behind him that happens to contain the big ass dagger from the start of the movie that was conveniently buried in this Carfax where the this abbey uh, where the plane crashed. Uh, but right before she can murder Tom Cruise, she notices the giant cartoon ruby is gone from the dagger. She looks very confused and concerned. Before she can say anything, though, Love Interest walks into the church and immediately goes into shock upon seeing beef jerky men. Uh, Tom Cruise uses this moment of distraction to yank himself free and punch a beef jerky minion in the face, but he gets his hand stuck in the jerky face. So he fights his way free and he keeps like getting his limbs stuck in other jerky men until he's just like incapacitated. And every time you bring up beef jerky, I just imagine the putties from Power Rangers, but they're made out of Slim Jims. <laughs> it's a lot like that. Uh, they're supposed to be spooky. Uh, they're just wiggling their fingers around. <laughs> it's a little like that. So uh, Princess Amonette goes after love interest. Uh, she's about to stab her, but Tom Cruise parkours over some like pews and stuff, grabs the dagger and stabs Amonette in the back. And then immediately runs out of the church. So Love Interest is still there gaping at the mummy with the knife in her back. He gets the only van in the area and starts driving away. Uh, she manages to catch up to him and jumps in the van and uh, basically accuses Tom Cruise of abandoning her, which he has. So Tom Cruise is still an asshole. As Tom Cruise drives away, it turns out mummy magic prevents him from leaving. So he keeps driving in circles. Uh, they get attacked by a bunch of the beef jerky minions who have now caught up with them. So instead of stopping to fight any of these guys who are now like half inside the vehicle, and they're also attacking one at a time, like one jumps in, gets knocked out, another one jumps in, gets knocked out. One finally is like in the windshield and Tom Cruise just decides to go real fast. He accidentally goes down a ditch. The whole thing flips. 
and Princess Amidette catches up by walking in slow motion through some fog. It's now morning. Tom Cruise wakes up, sees that she's walking towards him. He grabs a stick and runs at her, and she hits him and knocks him 20 feet into the air. It's kind of hilarious to watch Tom Cruise just get beat the shit up this whole movie. He gets knocked <laughs> like a cartoon rabbit 20 feet into the air, lands. Um, Aminette then goes to try to kiss Love Interest to give her the draining death kiss, but is harpooned by a secret government attack unit that just appear out of the woods. They're everywhere, and they've got harpoons and guns. Tom Cruise looks confused. Uh, one of the agents notices Tom Cruise being confused and shoots him with a knockout dart. We then cut back to London. Tom Cruise is being dragged through a museum. They go into a secret area where you get all of your cameos. So there's like a Dracula skull and the creature from the Black Lagoon hand is in some like green water. They quickly run through there and then Russell Crowe pops back up and does this long winded introduction telling us that he's Dr. Jekyll. He's got this black glove on his hand that he reveals has like a bunch of wounds where he injects himself with this, the world's largest EpiPen. <laughs> uh, he keeps this pen unloaded in a suitcase on the opposite side of the room from where he's making his dramatic points. And he starts turning into Mr. Hyde while talking about the nature of evil and man and his own history. Uh, he starts turning into the Hulk, more or less. Uh, his Question. eyes turn green. Question, how far into the movie are we at this point? Uh, okay, so the first time we see the mummy is 37 minutes in, and that's before, like, the big church attack. So we're probably 45-ish, 50-ish. What an odd placement for whatever the hell this is. This is the bread and butter of the Dark Universe, boys. Yeah, so in his introductory scene, he just randomly starts going into how he's also Mr. Hyde and transforming into Mr. Hyde. Kind of. He doesn't really explain it. He says he has an illness that makes him want the suffering of others. Uh, <laughs> like Tom Cruise. That has to be the oddest description of Mr. Hyde I've ever heard. <laughs> he's just usually a douchebag. Like, he wants the suffering of others. Yeah, like he was talking about how like he was he was a like a really prestigious person and I guess like full of himself and this is his curse. He has an illness where he's just a jackass who is evil. Uh we know he's serious though because like as he's talking his accent which is very posh becomes cockney and his eyes turn green. Uh anyways, he finishes loading the world's largest EpiPen which takes like six different injectors and a big cylinder. And then he stabs himself with it. It takes like five minutes to get this thing ready. Uh, and he, he turns back into Dr. Jekyll. Tom okay. Cruise looks very confused during this whole thing. So anyways, now Jekyll is back to normal. He takes Tom Cruise into another room and explains that Love Interest is one of his agents for the secret agency Prodigium. Their job is to recognize, contain, examine, and destroy evil. <laughs> Like evil anywhere? Are they busting up crack dens and shit? They, they don't go into it. I assume all evil. He knows what evil lurks in the heart of man, so he has to remove hearts. Uh, and he's he's kind of excited because Princess Almanette is the oldest evil they've ever encountered. So they have her suspended over a vat of mercury, and they're injecting the mercury into her, like, but it is, it's super cold mercury. So their plan is to freeze her and dissect her. Dr. Jekyll already knows that Tom Cruise is cursed and is a vessel for the ultimate evil, though. So the princess is tied up. Uh, she speaks to Tom in Egyptian, which he can now understand. And we get 
more of the flashbacks we've seen like nine times already. Uh, she explains his curse will never be broken, and she's trying to transform him into the human version of Set, Egyptian Satan. Uh, this kind of gets interrupted because Love Interest is continually yelling at Tom Cruise for staring off in the middle of nowhere. And before Love Interest can like give him any more uh, information, Princess Aminet starts screaming because the mercury is inside her skin and burning her. Tom Cruise snaps out of it. He's now very confused and sad, very forlorn. <laughs> he was having a good think. Torturing mummies, I guess, is the, the, the line for Tom Cruise. He's not about it. So we cut to the Prodigium agents uncovering the Knights Templar from the start of the film. They open up one of the graves and they find the giant cartoon ruby. Dun, dun, dun. Princess Aminette starts speaking English uh, and then dunks on love interest immediately by talking about how simple English is as a language, which linguistically not true. It's uh, very much a hodgepodge. English is a pain in the ass. Anyways. Ominate tells I, I, I will shit on English all day. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to agree with the mummy. It's not. I don't think it's an easy language to pick up because it doesn't follow the same kind of strict syntax rules. I think a lot of other languages are very focused on because it's a trash language and we all know it. I mean, Ominate doesn't seem to like the language, but I, I think her dissing it for being so simple is a little weird. Like, boy, this is a hard set of rules to pick up. It's, it's not like a romance language that is very orderly. Come on, lady. Anyways, uh, she tells Love Interest that Prodigium is going to kill Tom because, you know, he's the chosen vessel for evil and their whole job is destroying evil. Love Interest is surprised by this. So we cut to Dr. Jekyll. He's giving a drink to Tom Cruise. He's kind of explaining that, you know, they're going to have to murder him. Meanwhile, a suspicious beetle pops up through a grate in the holding room where they also have the dagger and the mummy. So that's not good. Love interest storms into the room with Dr. Jekyll and then asks, point blank, are you going to kill him? Like, she's not angry, just kind of like, whoa, 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 hold on, is, is, is that correct? Let me, I want the story straight. They then go into explaining the dagger again, in case we didn't get the dagger before, and saying Jesus that if he's killed Christ. with the dagger, it's, it's bad news bears for everybody. Also, so, how many MacGuffins are in this movie? The dagger and the, the ruby, those are the big MacGuffins. Uh, anyways, and Tom as Tom Cruise, technically. And Tom Cruise, yeah, you're right. Uh, as Jekyll is explaining this, he starts getting his Cockney accent, so he runs over to his super EpiPen, uh, but he didn't reload it last time, and apparently he needs to inject himself like every 20 minutes, but he doesn't think about reloading it. <laughs> so he starts, he starts clipping it in and trying to get this thing ready. We go back to the beetle, it's crawled up a computer tech's neck now and into his ear. Uh, he slaps at his ear, but it's too late, he is now a computer zombie. We go back to Tom Cruise. He snatches away the super EpiPen before Jekyll can finish loading it. Uh, he then realizes that he's done fucked up and Jekyll is transforming into a monster. So he tries to give the pen back, but it's too late. He's already pretty much transformed. Jekyll tells Tom Cruise to run, even though like three seconds ago he was trying to murder him. I'm becoming Cockney! That's it. Uh, so let me, let me describe Mr. Hyde in this movie. Russell Crowe stands up straight. Because before, he kind of is a little hunched over. Uh, his posh accent becomes a Cockney accent. And his eyes are now green. So, Mr. Hyde uh, starts slapping Tom Cruise around the room. Just throwing him around, yelling about how Tom Cruise may be a younger man, but he can learn a lot from the likes of him. Fun fact, Tom Cruise is like a year younger than Russell Crowe. It's like a 55 to 56 year old age gap. <laughs> so that's the line I've been hearing so much about. So I, I imagine Russell Crowe probably didn't appreciate that one, but whatever. 
Cockney Crow says he doesn't want to kill Tom, but he's also being the shit out of him. <laughs> Uh, then he pauses and he also says uh, he's his good friend Eddie Hyde. So we now know this is a cool version of Mr. Hyde. No, Mr. Yeah. Oh, he puts on sunglasses and begins surfing. He should have. I would have liked that. Right there in the room. Ooh, radical. Uh, oh, uh, I forgot. By this point, the zombie tech has uh, fucked up the frozen mercury system. So the mummy is now vomiting mercury all over the place. Ew. We go back to Cockney Crow picking up. Tom Cruise by a pair of CGI ribs, like he digs his hand underneath Tom Cruise's CGI ribs and lifts him up, which is actually kind of a grody way to do that. It's cool, but it doesn't look super real either. Uh, while this is happening, Tom Cruise is being thrown around the room. He finally grabs the super epi pen, finishes loading it, and injects Cockney Crow, and everything's back to normal. Love Interest then runs into the room, declares that they have to destroy the ruby. Tom Cruise is confused because he doesn't understand why the ruby is important, even though it's been explained to him like 19 fucking times. So she Tom breaks it, Cruise is a stupid asshole in this He's a stupid asshole in this movie. Uh, so she breaks it down one more time, basically saying, if there's no stone, there's no curse. Which Tom Cruise is fine with. He can understand that part. So they run off. Tom Cruise makes eye contact with Princess Aminette. They, they share a quick moment. Uh, but Love Interest grabs him and drags him off. The mummy is sad, and then she quickly becomes mad. And then she breaks free and kisses several of the Prodigium grunts to death. Uh, then she recites an incantation that breaks all the glass in London. Eyeglasses, shot glasses, uh, window glasses, it all shatters and turns into fine dust. Tom Cruise attempts to outrun this maelstrom. Uh, apparently he got super upset on set because he was doing his running thing with love interest and she was keeping pace with him and he didn't think that would happen. So there's one part in the movie where you can see Tom Cruise and him or her running neck and neck. He turns, sees her, and then starts picking up the pace to outrun her, which just makes Tom Cruise look like an asshole, both in real life and in the movie. Tom Cruise is a sociopath. So the next time we see them running, uh, uh, Love Interest has to mention on the commentary, like, hey, I'm catching up with Tom Cruise there, keeping pace, because she's very proud of Tom Cruise. All the man does is run, so that's a pretty big deal. Question. All the... Yes. The commentary for this, is this anything like the Blade Trinity commentary where they're all joking about Wesley Snipes, but they're really shitting on him and insulting him the entire time? They don't, they they act like they love Tom Cruise, but they realize the man is maybe a little insane. I'm sure they fear Tom Cruise. It's and that weird. religion, he's a, he more or less runs at this point. I mean, it's kind of odd because Alex Kurtzman is there, so they have the director. And they have, uh, I, I'm forgetting so many names, the actress who plays the mummy, they have the actress who plays the love interest, they have Jake Johnson. So they have all the main crew there, except for Tom Cruise. He's the only one not involved with the commentary for this at all. That's suspicious. It's also a little weird because they decide to record the commentary the first time the actors have ever seen the movie. <laughs> oh. So they're, they're sitting in a room and there's no sound because they have to have headsets on the recording so they, they can't hear what's happening, and they're just watching the movie, and all of them are gushing about how cool everything is. So, boy, they're either very good actors, or uh, they're going to be in for a very hard time when they start reading reviews like this. Oh, that was definitely done on purpose. Just don't, sh we, we have them booked, don't show them the movie beforehand, and just don't have audio or anything. That way they won't notice. Why do I feel like in the next room, Tom Cruise is sitting at the recording booth, staring at them? With <laughs> His fingers are steepled. He's just doing the Monty Burns. So anyways, uh, 
all the busted glass in London is now gathered up and we get a ripoff of the giant sand face from the 1999 mummy. It, it races through the streets of London and it starts flipping cars and chasing Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom Cruise and love interest get separated for a minute. Ghost zombie Jake Johnson appears again and tells Tom he knows where the stone is. Uh, since they're doing the American werewolf thing, like he's more deteriorated now. But since this is PG-13, he has like one ghostly white eye and he's got like gray skin. Ooh. It's spooky, spooky. Uh, Kurtzman on the commentary mentioned that he wanted to make uh, ghost zombie Jake Johnson be a noseless zombie. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen. So that's that's the limit of the gore here. He just looks kind of dead. So Tom Cruise starts following Ghost Zombie Jake Johnson's orders. He finds himself in the tunnels that connect to the subway, that connect to the nice Templar crypt. And then Ghost Zombie Jake Johnson starts telling Tom that Princess Amonet will never let love interest live. And then he kind of like laughs and has a villain moment as Mummy starts swarming the tunnel coming at Tom Cruise. So Tom Cruise continues to run and Ghost Zombie Jake Johnson disappears. It's it's a really weird beat considering Ghost Zombie Jake Johnson is supposedly Tom Cruise's friend throughout the film. But He's Tom very Cruise schizophrenic. Is, uh, Tom Cruise is always an asshole to Ghost Zombie Jake Johnson, so <laughs> I can see why he set him up. Uh, anyways, a mummy is sneaking up behind love interest. Just as it's about to reach her, Tom Cruise sneaks in and kills the mummy. Hooray! Uh, then more mummies attack. So they start running. Luckily, they're in a tunnel that's being used by a real subway. So they're able to sneak their way past an oncoming train into a new tunnel that's also filled with like 20 more mummies that are luckily like 20 feet behind them. So they have time to run off while being chased. So it's just a zombie movie at this point. Yeah, they, they refer to them as zombies in the commentary. And that's a good way to say it. They're beef jerky men more so than mummies. Where uh, is the mummy getting all this free time to make out with all these people? I guess she ate all the Prodigium guys, which isn't true because we see more later. Uh, I don't know. They just appear. Uh, while this is all going on, we've gotten like various scenes of Aminette just walking through the subway tunnels ominously. She finally shows up in the main cavern where all the knights are. Uh, they're resurrecting and they're bowing to her. She collects the giant cartoon ruby and sticks it into the big ass dagger. So she now has both McGovern's combined into one and just needs Tom Cruise. She's got two out of three Infinity Stones. Tom Cruise, meanwhile, in a different tunnel, gets knocked through a wall into a pool by a a Knight's Templar mummy. Love interest and Tom Cruise bite the mummy off. It falls to the bottom of the pool. And then they swim up to an air pocket where they start talking about how concerned they are for each other. Uh, I guess they're now a totally official adorbs cute couple. Uh, Aminette pops up and then drags love interest away. I don't know how she got into that pool so goddamn fast. Tom Cruise follows after her, but he just can't swim as fast as that damn mummy. So he has to go back up, get some more air. He goes through a tunnel. There's more Knights Templar zombies coming at him. Uh, They're also very slow swimmers, though, so they don't really do anything. Uh, He swims past them and then finds Love Interest's body floating in the water. He grabs her, swims back up to safety, drags her out of the water. He, He looks very confused at first when she won't wake up, then realizes he should be crying. So he, like... Tries to cry, but he just looks like he's lost the ability to close his eyes, and he can't eject any water from his face. So it's like a a dry sob, maybe. It's not Tom's best moment as an actor. And I don't even want to diss Tom as an actor, because he's done some things I really enjoy. This is not great. Anyways, while Tom is mourning love interests, Aminette pops up and tells Tom he needs to submit. He decides to bum-rush her, and she just 
this is the best part of the movie beats the living shit out of tom cruise <laughs> yeah <laughs> fucking finally like she he, he runs up to her and she just does this haymaker that knocks him into the ground like getting punched out by the juggernaut he just goes down <laughs> mommy like justice like he's got the mummies motherfucker <laughs> It's like getting pimp slapped by Colossus. He's getting thrown around the room and just kicked and smacked and stomped. He's going through tombs and rocks. He picks up a crowbar, hits her in the leg. She gets pissed off, so she takes the crowbar and, like, breaks his leg. But not really. It's just, like, a sound effect of a breaking leg. He walks fine the rest of the time. The uh, so she she chokes him while repeatedly telling him he needs to give in. And, like, it's getting uncomfortable. Like, she's just sexually assaulting him at this point. To really seal the deal, she pulls him in close, and then she licks Tom Cruise's face. Apparently, this was Tom's idea. Uh, <laughs> they really doubled down on the whole, this time the mummy's sexy thing, didn't they? This mummy fucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, Vaslu got down. You saw that room. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. I just realized, when she tries to fuck him earlier in the movie where she's still all, like, bony and a mummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What was he going to enter? <laughs> I don't think they're going to go that far. She was also looking for the dagger so she could murder him. I think she just wanted him to have half a chub. <laughs> the only way to defeat Tom Cruise. But it's like nothing but hip bones. I mean, this whole thing's confusing because the first man she saw that she didn't immediately kiss murder, she decides is going to be her like new king for the rest of eternity. Like, I have no idea why she needs to make a man into set. I understand the dagger mechanics of it, I guess, because I explained them 30 times, but I don't know why she needs a king to inherit set's power and why that king needs to be Tom Cruise. Like, it feels like it should be literally anyone in the world. And it's set. Couldn't he just show up at some point? No, he only shows up in that first three seconds of the movie and then, like, a couple times in flashbacks. Because they flash back to, like, every little bit of Egypt they filmed throughout the movie at some point. But while this is going on, Tom Cruise has just been licked and he utters what has to be the shittiest like one liner ever said in an action film. This is this is written down from the movie. I'm not making any of this up. Tom Cruise says, I'm sorry, we're just never going to happen. It's not me. It's you. And and this is so upsetting to Aminette that she <laughs> like throws him across the room in anger and doesn't notice that the giant dagger she's been holding in her hand is gone and Tom Cruise now has the big-ass dagger. To be fair, that's the most devastating thing you could ever hear from Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the commentary, they mentioned this was important because Tom Cruise defeats the villain by embracing his inner thief, which is what he was doing at the start of the movie. So it's a character trait that saves the day. Which is strange, like, I don't know why they're embracing theft is, like, the reason why he's so good. Lots of people can just take things out of somebody's hand when it's a knife and you're trying not to be killed by said knife. It's not really a thief thing, like, he didn't, like, break into a fucking safe. Now, that's yeah. a movie I want to see. We, It's a heist movie we are stealing from a mummy. <laughs> mummy oh, heist. Oh, finally, fucking the, like, Karloff's mummy being a rich douchebag, like, halfway <laughs> through the movie, finally fucking pays off. <laughs> oh, man, it's like, don't breathe, except instead of a crazy blind dude, it's a mummy. <laughs> no! What a reveal would that gladly... would fucking be. That's the movie I want to watch. I wish I had watched that instead of this several times. We should have known better than to steal from Mr. Emotep. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Tom Cruise has the dagger. He whacks it on the ground once and the ruby cracks. And Amonette is alarmed because that's exactly what she doesn't want to happen. So she tells him he has to wait and that if he just lets him, uh, her kill him, that he'll become a god and be able to control life and death. He'll become the living version of, of Seth. Uh, Tom Cruise kind of gives in. He, he stands up. He walks over to her. They kind of embrace like they're about to kiss. And then he stabs himself with the dagger, which kicks off another series of flashbacks that cover all the flashbacks we've already <laughs> seen in flashback 30 times. Good God. Also, he says the kill the bad guy line, and then the movie just keeps going for a few more minutes, and then we get this. Yes. Yes. The hell? You're fired. Anyway, I'm going to punch you for now. <laughs> yes. So at this point, the ruby turns black. Tom Cruise opens his eyes and his people split in two, just like the mummies. He pulls the dagger out of himself and drops on the ground and the ruby shatters. I swear, guys, we're real close to the end. Just hang with me. I'm exhausted, too. Omnit walks up to him. He's now mummy-eyed. She thinks they've sealed the deal, they're about to kiss, but Tom Cruise over her shoulder sees Love Interest's corpse and has more flashbacks. He has flashbacks of like the three moments they talked where they weren't like yelling at each other, and his eyes return to normal. Was the movie running short? It's like an hour 40, an hour 50, I don't know. Uh, he then has more flashbacks after his eyes return to normal to Dr. Jekyll telling him he could be the cure for evil. The cure for evil. So Tom and Amonet grab each other's faces and start having like a kiss off. I'm sorry, I, I read my notes wrong. They have a hiss off. They start hissing at each other like cats. If only. <laughs> Uh, so they're hissing at each other. Tom then picks her up and throws her across the room and then uses his super mummy speed to transport across the room and grab her and push her against the wall before she can stand back up fully. But that's the opposite of what a mummy has, Cody. <laughs> no, this movie has super fast mummies. Uh, he then picks her up and smashes her onto the ground and then he gives her the evil mummy death kiss. So she rides on the ground. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be like, I'm in so much pain or this is pure pleasure. Oh, she finally nutted after 10,000 years. <laughs> I guess that's it. Uh, 5,000. And then she shrivels into the fetal position as Tom Cruise finishes killing her with his death kiss. Uh, next, he runs over to, uh, oh, wow. For the first time in my notes, I referred to love interest by her character name. Her character name is Jenny. Uh <laughs> He runs over to Funny, Jenny and finally, yells at her. a third act reveal. Multiple times, wake up, Jenny, Jenny, wake up, Jenny, Jenny, wake up, Jenny, wake up, Jenny, before Tom Cruise turns into his monster form. No. Uh, his monster form is he's got like a gray face and kind of spooky eyes and his teeth are sharp. He's got, <laughs> he's got, he's got fangs. Uh, is it no kind of, all, of, all of his teeth are pointy, not just like the biters, not just the blood drainers. Uh... He also only has like eight pointy teeth. Uh, he, he lost most of the ones in between. So he, he then uses his monster form to scream, wake up at, at Jenny. Uh, pretty much like the Hulk with Iron Man and Avengers. Uh, so love interest wakes up, but Tom Cruise is now gone. But like Tom Cruise is a really shitty Batman and she notices him immediately hiding in a corner. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, do not see me. Yeah, he's he's cowering in the shadows so she can't see his new monster face. Um 
and then for some reason I wrote Tom Cruise's character name here t- for the first time. Uh, Nick, Tom Cruise is playing a character named Nick, uh, tells her she has to stop. He says he's made tons of mistakes, but he's very glad she's alive. Uh, then he kind of does like a meta back pat by saying, we didn't see this coming, did we? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, God Love damn. Interest looks confused because Tom Cruise can only speak in like riddles at this point. And she was out cold <laughs> for all life. of this. Yeah, she's like, she's been out cold the whole time, so she doesn't know how the bad guy was killed, or like how Tom Cruise now has evil mummy powers, or he's just hiding in the shadows, acting weird and talking in whispers. Uh, so while she's looking confused, all of a sudden, Prodigium, like another 40 guys just show up from nowhere. They were in another basement, I guess, not in that wing where the mummy killed everyone. She gets distracted for a second, and this time, Tom Cruise finishes his Batman and he's gone. Dr. Jekyll walks in. Love interests in him give each other very stoic looks. Dr. Jekyll then says Tom found his redemption at great cost and is a monster now. Prodigium takes Amonette, takes her back to the same place where she broke out before, but they just put her into the sarcophagus and they fill the whole thing up with mercury and call it good. Jake Johnson and Tom, uh, who is now wearing a scarf just wrapped around his lower face, are now in the desert on horses. Uh, Jake... Johnson thanks Tom Cruise for reviving him, but is super confused about what they're doing out in the desert. Tom asks him where his sense of adventure is, and then jumps on a horse in slow motion and rides away. Dr. Jekyll and Love Interest then are having a voiceover wondering if Tom will be their greatest ally or their greatest enemy. And the film ends, mercifully ends, with Dr. Jekyll saying, Sometimes it does take a monster to fight a monster. The and that's why I have to kill Tom Cruise now. <laughs> so that was supposed to be the start of the Dark Universe. Tom Cruise is now uh, uh, a super Egyptian god-man who can sense evil in the world and is either going to gather it or destroy it. And there's an evil group of military men who are maybe not evil, but just have questionable means depending on the commands of their officer, Dr. Jekyll, who's sometimes a green cockney man. And th- there you go. Who knows? Maybe a Dracula or two. Get in the mix. <laughs> <sighs> that movie I'm sounded speechless. terrible. It's I'm mad. Great. I'm mad I even had to listen to what happens in that movie. I feel sweaty and shameful for having... <laughs> Taking all of your time to recount this. <laughs> Just like Tom Cruise in that bathroom with the mummy. <laughs> God, I... What's fucked up is, I've always been so confused as to what the actual plot of this movie is. I still don't know what happens in this movie. Uh, they put the mummy in the glass jar from Star Trek Into Darkness, and then she breaks out, and she gets all three Infinity Stones in one place, but when she snaps her fingers, she dies... And and Tom Cruise gets all the powers, and he doesn't know how to use them. So he's just going to be sequel bait. I'm fascinated that he resurrected Jake Johnson in what has to be the most random, this character suddenly alive again, scene oh, I've yes. ever fucking heard. They're just suddenly out in the desert, and he's totally fine. Like, Jake Johnson's like, oh, hello, it's me. Thanks, Tom Cruise, for using your magic powers to revive me. I sure like being alive. Those lines are very close to what's said in the movie. <laughs> also, what a shitty monster Cruz is. He's just pale and has some pointy teeth. And they show it for about three seconds. So 
it's it's really a tease. Like they, I think, wanted to kind of be like, "Oh man, this is gonna be great next time around." I'm glad we'll never see next time around. <sighs> I'm I'm real sad we're not gonna get good classic Universal monsters. But if they're all gonna turn out like this, maybe we don't need more creature from the Black Lagoon. Just imagine the alternate world where they let Guillermo del Toro do this. They apparently approached him and he said no because he was doing Shape of Water. Imagine how much that smarts for Universal. Del Toro said no, and then made an Oscar essentially doing his version of the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> Meanwhile, is, you got The Mummy. That is a monster diss album, if ever. <laughs> like, what did they do to Del Toro, I have to wonder? Like, did they burn down one of his favorite projects? Was it when they passed on At the Mountains of Madness for, like, the third time? What, what? What did they do Probably. for Del Toro to be like, I have to destroy them in the long con? <laughs> I would get Fishman revenge, the greatest kind. <laughs> uh, just as long as we're throwing petty dirt. Here's a, here's a fun fact. Petty so dirt. the mummy reboots, the mummy reboots from the 1990s and 2000s, uh, they were made for like 80 to 90 million dollars each. The first one earned like $415 million worldwide, and the second one earned $430 million. Which, thinking about it, goddamn, that's pretty impressive for 2000s money. The Mummy reboot budget is listed on uh, Wikipedia as somewhere between $125 to $195 million. And it pulled in a worldwide total of $409 million. This movie was thoroughly outgrossed by The Mummy Returns. <laughs> That's the real dark universe, guys. <laughs> so, okay, boy. Play, PlayStation The Rock as the Scorpion King outgrossed this movie. It's going through my mummy phase this last week. This, this, <laughs> going this, through my mummy phase. My mummy a concept phase. album by Cody Helft. My, my mummy bender, uh, as you could call it. Like, Rewatching the Stephen Summers mummy movies, I feel bad because as a kid, I grew up with this kind of snotty attitude like they're just fun popcorn movies. And as an adult, I have no idea what's wrong with that. <laughs> How dare he give me a fun thing? <laughs> I had to watch the 2017 mummy to appreciate fun. <laughs> so in a way, it made you a better person. It did. I really appreciate them. Oh, I love the mummy as a kid. I just had a stupid attitude about it. I think I enjoy The Mummy Returns a little bit more now. Oh my god, Cody, are you? do you mean to tell me that sometimes it takes a bad movie to fight other bad movies? Smash credits! This has been a Tales from the Bop. Get the hell out of here. I like the train wreck that became. And like that, he's gone. I swear that commentary was killing me the whole time. I'm just like, I feel like I'm melting. I don't want to talk with these words anymore. I'm done with the mummy. I don't want to talk with these words anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the final words. So <laughs> <laughs> like an alien that's dying from the pollution in our Earth air. <laughs> I do want that on my tombstone. <laughs> I like it. Um, uh, Cody, while we're here, uh, this illustrious mummified episode, I think nothing would be more appropriate than you performing one of your famous songs for us. 
<laughs> oh god, what lyrics do you have? Is there a mummy rap I'm not aware of? Cody, I would like you to perform Chun Li by Nicki Minaj for us tonight. Uh, let me look at the lyrics. <laughs> let me make sure you're not going to get me in trouble now. <laughs> no, I just don't know them. <laughs> I also don't know the beat, so this could be really terrible. All right. Uh, this is Chun Li from Nicki Minaj, according to Genius.com's lyrics. Also, every time I finish a section that has uh, annotation, I'll be reading the annotation and then going back to the lyrics. Thank you, Cody. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> They've broken upon me. Found me doing an unholy thing. He went for a little walk. I knelt by the bed of death. Ayo, look like I'm going for a swim. Dunk on him, now I'm swinging off the rim. Bitch ain't coming off the bench while I'm coming off the court fully drenched. Here, get some haterade, get your thirst quenched. The first set of annotations describe this as, in basketball, a dunk is when the ball is slammed through the rim. However... <laughs> <laughs> however... Nikki also plays on the alternative meaning of dunk to immerse or dip in water by using the word swim. She continues the play on words by saying that she is drenched in sweat from how hard she is working. Another interpretation of the verse is that Nikki is feeling drenched in the criticism and hate whilst her rivals are getting off lightly slash unnoticed for their part in this dispute. Additionally, bitch ain't coming off the bench while I'm coming off the court fully drenched would imply that they aren't speaking out the truth to support her, leaving her on her own. Also, Gatorade is a sports drink that uh, <laughs> abates dehydration. While Gatorade doesn't exactly have an official slogan, they often refer to their main beverage as the thirst quencher. Haterade is a combination of the word hater and Gatorade, used to refer as a drink that haters drink. Styled on them in this Burberry trench. Burberry is a British luxury fashion <laughs> brand founded in 1856. One piece of clothing they are known for is the Heritage Trench Coat. Nikki made the track Chun-Li in a matter of days, and one day before the song premiered, she went to a Lakers vs. Rocket game wearing a Burberry coat. It was later revealed that she was shooting the Chun-Li video that same day. These birds copy every word, every inch, but gang gang got the hammer and the wrench, burr. Some species of birds, notably parrots, can copy human speech. Nikki's use of the word inch may also be a comment on her competition copying her hair, which she has also mentioned on the Plain Jane remix. Quote, all these bitches rockin' itches because they follow in the leader, end quote. Hammers and wrenches are common building tools. Nikki and her gang are building the rap game and pave the way for other artists. Hammer is also slang for a gun. <laughs> I pull up in that quarter milli off the lot. Many luxury vehicles, such as Ferrari or Lamborghini, <laughs> sell for around a quarter million dollars or $250,000. This is going to take a while. <laughs> Nikki also indicates that the car is new and fresh, out the dealership lot, showing off her status and financial gains. Oh, now she trying to be friends like I forgot. The she mentioned here might be a reference to Cardi B. Rumors of a possible beef between Cardi and Nikki continue to circulate, especially following their song Motorsport with uh, Migos. 
In a recent interview on Beats One Radio with Zane Lowe, Nikki expressed pleasure that Cardi had refused to defend her when rumors of a beef began to arise. Quote, The first thing that comes out of Cardi's mouth when someone asks her about a Nicki Minaj feature is, she changed her verse. Excuse me? It's because of the Nicki hate parade. Now that Cardi wants to be friends, even citing in an interview with Ebro Darden on Beats One that there is no beef, Nikki does not forget their past issues. You can learn more about Cardi B and Nikki's complicated relationship in this recently published Billboard article. I am not going to read that link. Show off my diamonds like I'm signed by The Rock. By The Rock. Ain't pushing out this baby's till he buys The Rock. Rock Nation is an entertainment company founded by Jay-Z that includes Rockefeller Records. Nikki also gave Jay and Rock a shout-out on Barbie Tings. Quote, I spoke to Jay the other day. He's still the kingpin. He's still the only, uh, N-word, that I would sign. <laughs> almost stumbled there. I would assign to if I ain't signed to Wayne's perfectly designed crew. End quote. The Rockefeller Rock Records Diamond logo chain has traditionally only been given to the label's family members or those who have contributed to the label's success in some way. Nikki counts herself as a rock family, given her friendship with Hav and part ownership in title. And then there's a picture of a giant diamond necklace. Also, getting married before having kids is a sentiment Nikki has always stood by. In 2014, Complex Profile, she said, quote, I definitely will be married before I have my baby. I want to make sure I do it in that order. I always felt like that since I was young. My mother always put that in my head. End quote. Chorus time. Ayo, I've been on, bitch. You've been corn. Nikki's been in the rap game for over a decade, over ever since she released her first mixtape, Playtime is Over, in 2007. Since then, she dropped two more mixtapes, Sucka Free and Be Me Up Scotty, as well as studio album Pink Friday and The Pink Print. Corny is slang for being uncool. <laughs> Bentley tints on, Fendi prints on. In 2011, Nikki famously bought her own Barbie Bentley, a pink Bentley Continental GT. Fendi is an Italian luxury fashion company that specializes in furs. A Fendi print is any clothing made by Fendi with its logo on it. Nikki wearing a Fendi print jacket and thong in the cover art for Chun-Li. And then there's a picture of the cover art for Chun-Li with Nicki Minaj. I mean, I've been Storm, X-Men been formed. He keep on dialing Nikki like the Prince song. I, I, I been on, bitch, you been corn. Storm is the second-in-command of the X-Men, a superhero team from the Marvel Universe. She has the power to manipulate the weather. The X-Men in this case are likely Nikki's Young Money crew, which include Drake and Lil Wayne. Darling Nikki is a 1984 Prince track about a sexual encounter with a powerful woman. Nikki sampled the song in 2011's Blow Ya Mind. In the song, Prince calls the woman's house her castle. Nikki calls her fanbase the kingdom. At the end of Darling Nikki, Nikki leaves a note for Prince asking him to call her whenever he wants, to grind. Nikki is bragging about her sexual prowess, saying men call her up just like Nikki. Anyways, oh, I forgot one. Oh, this, I'm sorry, this is a repetition of the earliest Nikki's been in the rap game uh, comment for I, I've been on, bitch, you've been corn. Sorry, moving on. Bentley tints on, Fendi prints on, Ayo, I've been north, Laura Bencroft. Plate say Chun Li, drop the bends off. Continuing her theme of referencing powerful female heroes, Nikki name drops Laurie Croft, the strong female protagonist of the classic Tomb Raider game series and later films. In a tweet, Nikki indicates that she's using North as a way to say that she's been to the top. You can't look at Nikki without acknowledging she has always been attached to the top of the rap game, just like you could never look at Laura without acknowledging that her last name has always been Croft. <laughs> what? 
Chun-Li is a fictional character from the iconic Street Fighter video game franchise. Nikki first referenced her in the verse on Willow Smith's 2011 track, Fireball. Quote, Okay, I'm the Street Fighter, call me Chun-Li. End quote. Chun-Li was the first female character added to the Street Fighter game, and similarly, Nikki believes she's the first female rap artist to develop a strong reputation and establish her grounds in the music industry. This is evident in her 10 Grammy nominations, and in passing Aretha Franklin for the most Billboard Hot 100 hits by any female. She even pays homage to the character by dressing up as her in the cover art. Nikki also partnered with luxury car company Mercedes-Benz to promote the streaming site title. Also, interestingly, Plate Say Chun sounds somewhat like PlayStation, which ties into the video game theme of the song. <laughs> Interlude 1 <laughs> Oh, I get it, huh? They painted me out to be the bad guy. Well, it's the last time you're gonna see a bad guy do the rap game, like me. After Remy Ma released her 2017 diss track, Sheether, Nikki was consistently painted as a villain by fans and media. For instance, a slew of damaging articles were written about her, and Remy claimed that, behind the scenes, Nikki made phone calls and refused to attend shows in order to prevent Remy from making money. Nikki's responding by reasoning if she really was the bad guy, then she wouldn't have contributed so much to the rap game. She enunciates these lines in stereotypically villainous voice to add emphasis. I apologize, I've never heard the song, so I didn't realize I should have been reading them like a villain. <laughs> also, Nikki is, play, uh, is paying homage to the classic speech given by the lead character Tony Montana, played by Al Pacino, in the 1983 crime drama Scarface. Verse 2. I went and copped the chopsticks. Put it in my bun just to bop shit. I'm always in the top shit. Box seats, bitch. Fuck the gossip. The chopstick bun is a popular hairstyle originating from Asian culture. Nikki has been rocking the hairdo on multiple occasions, most notably in the music video for her breakout song, Your Love. Nikki is known to pay homage to Asian culture, mainly Japanese, to simply honor her great-grandfather. Here Nikki is also referring to the Chun-Li character's hairstyle from the video game Street Fighter. Chun-Li rocks two side buns just like Nikki's single cover art. Also, sports stadiums have box seats, or corporate boxes, which normally provide the best views of the action, and therefore come with a much higher price tag than regular seating. Nikki is claiming that she is above all the gossip which has swirled around her relationship with Cardi B and with Nas. How many of them could did it with finesse? Not everybody like she really is the best. You play checkers, couldn't beat me playing chess. Nikki is saying that her competitors in the rap game are simple-minded and play checkers. Checkers is considered a simple game because there isn't much variation in how the pieces move. However, in chess, there are multiple variations of how pieces can move and interact. This could also be taken as her saying that nobody can beat her at her own game, which, in this case, is rap. Then there's a picture of checkers with a checkerboard and chess with a chessboard. Now I'm about to turn around and beat my chest. To turn around means to change in strategy that favors you. This is a common term in chess games. Nikki uses a double entendre on this line. Beat my chess, chest basically saying that she found a better strategy to turn the game around and beat her opponent in chess. She beats her chess like King Kong to show off, confirm her victory, and let it be known that she is unmatched. To beat one's chess is expressing meaning to show off or outmatch someone else, alluding to a behavior in gorillas, in which dominant males will thump their chest to intimidate other gorillas. Nikki warns her competitors to back off or else they'll get hurt trying to compete with the Queen of Rap. This also ties into the next line, when she references King Kong, arguably the most well-known gorilla in Hollywood. <laughs> there's a of King Kong pounding his chest. <laughs> Bitch, it's King Kong. Yes, it's King Kong. Bitch, it's King Kong. This is King Kong. 
Kong is a giant gorilla and one of the main characters of the movie King Kong. He resided on a lost island called Skull Island, where he uh, where he was considered as the king. Kong spent his life defeating anyone who stood in his way. Here, Nikki compares herself to him. She was considered herself the queen of rap for many years, and she can back it up. With that said, Nikki does indeed go apeshit on this track. Chinese ink on, Siamese links on, call me two chains, name go ding dong. Chinese ink on refers to Chinese tattoo on Nikki's left arm, which says, I can't read Chinese. <laughs> Meaning God is always with you. And then there's a picture of the tattoo. Siamese twins, another name for conjoined twins, are two twins joined together in one body. Nikki always wears gold chains in the song's artwork which are linked together as two twins or two chains. Two Chains is another well-known rapper tying in with the onomatopoeia of Ding Dong to show that both rappers' names ring bells when people hear them. The two collaborate on Nicki's 2012 track, Bees in the Trap. Nicki also featured on Two Chains' song Realize in 2017, talking about her status and rivalry with other rappers. Quote, they see me winning and now they don't like it. Act like they love me, but hate me in private. End quote. Bitch, it's King Kong. Yes, I'm King Kong. This King Kong? Yes, Miss King Kong. Kong is a giant gorilla and one of the main characters of the movie King Kong. <laughs> he resided on a lost island called Skull Island, where he was considered the king. In my kingdom with my Tims on, how many championships? What six rings? On. Tim's is short for Timberland brand boots, which are popular among New Yorkers. Nikki has custom Tim's that she commissioned prior to the Pink Prince release in 2014. And there's a picture of said custom Tim's. How many championships? What? Six rings on. Michael Jordan, considered by many to be the greatest basketball player of all time, won six championships with the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s. And there's a picture of Michael Jordan wearing all six championship rings. Nikki considers her three official mixtapes and three studio albums to be championship quality. She also compared herself to Jordan in 2017's No Frauds. Quote, They say numbers don't matter, but when they discuss in the Kings, they turn around and say LeBron ain't got six rings. End quote. Also, as of June 10th, 2018, that is still a factually accurate statement. <laughs> Interlude 2. They need rappers like me. They need rappers like me, so they can get on their fucking keyboards and make me the bad guy, Chun-Li. While defending herself from the recent social media narrative that has cast her in negative light, largely due to her 2017 beef with Remy Ma and adding on to her collection of alter egos, Nikki channels her inner Tony Monto Montana with this alteration of the memorable Al Pacino-delivered monologue from the 1983 movie Scarface. And then there's a video clip I'm not going to watch. Interestingly enough, Nikki does have a murky past, being arrested for gun possession, being involved in robberies both as the getaway driver and personal robber, and being on the run for attempted murder, then turning herself in, as told by a childhood friend and fellow member of the former rap group, The Hood Stars, stars spelled with a dollar sign, seven even. This of course helps the analogy make more sense. And there's Thanks, a mugshot mug of Nicki Minaj, the mugshot for the aforementioned gun possession arrest. Chorus. Ayo, I've been on, bitch. You been corn. Bentley tints on, Fendi prints on. I mean, I've been storm, X-Men been formed. He keep on dialing Nikki like the Prince song. I, I, I been on, bitch. You been corn. Bentley tints on, Fendi prints on. Ayo, I've been north, Laura been croft. Plate say Chun-Li, drop the bends off. Outro. I come alive, I, I'm always sky high. Nikki released her third studio album, The Pink Print, in 2014. 
She also released three loose singles in March 2017 and went on a four-month hiatus from social media before the release of this single, Chun-Li, which is considered her comeback. Despite the long break she takes, Nicki never loses her buzz or her spot as a top female rapper. For example, Chun-Li climbed to the Billboard Top 100, Top 10, on April 24th, two weeks after the release of the song, and her upcoming fourth studio album is one of the most anticipated albums of 2018. Designer Thigh Highs, It's My Lifestyle Designer shoes, especially thigh-high boots, are what Nicki Minaj has stated is her lifestyle. She also states the word designer. Usually, designer shoes are very expensive, so Nicki is saying that she's rich and she has the money to afford designer clothes. I come alive, I, I'm always sky-high. Designer thigh-highs, it's my lifestyle. I need a Mai Tai, so fucking sci-fi. Mai Tai is a Polynesian cocktail based on rum, Caraco liquors, orchid syrup, and lime juice. As an island girl herself, Nikki wants that tropical vibe to get her to that next level in the club. The fact that Nikki is telling us that she needs a drink at this moment should also give us pause. As she recently said in her jaw-dropping and emotional interview with Zane Lowe, she barely drinks or does not drink at all when she goes out clubbing. So if she needs this Mai Tai, she's definitely not having the best day. Sci-fi is short for science fiction. Nikki rarely drinks alcohol, so if she needs a Mai Tai, it's an extraordinary day. Her video for Chun-Li also references sci-fi movies aesthetic, such as Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, as well as the video game Street Fighter, in which the character Chun-Li made her first appearance. Give me the password to the fucking Wi-Fi. Typically, it's a formality to wait for the owner of the house to give you the Wi-Fi. Or you politely ask for it. Here, Nikki skips formalities and doesn't give a shit if you don't give her the Wi-Fi password or not, because she knows she'll get it. When she gets the Wi-Fi, she's going to get back on the internet after her four-month-long hiatus from social media before she releases this single. And that is the song. This didn't have anything to do with mummies. Why did we do this? This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, please, please... Put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.